So I thought I would start this evening's talk about concentration, samadhi, as we perhaps a better name for it, with a little bit about the Buddha's story. Because the Buddha had a very uh, a significant history with this practice of samadhi. So after he... I won't go into the whole story, though it's a lovely story. But after he decided he wanted to practice, he wanted to find out the way things were. And he left the palace and he went out in search of the truth. And in his day, in that, at that time, this search, this being a ascetic out wandering the countryside, practicing in search of spiritual truth was not uncommon. It's quite interesting how much that was happening at that time. So he went out looking and much like you have left your home, come here in search of something. And this was the, my suggestion earlier today, to connect with your intention. The Buddha had seen sickness, old age, and death, and realized that what was, mm, that what was impermanent, what was passing, was not going to be satisfying. That the putting his faith in the body, in passing conditions of mind, in the riches or fame of the kingdom, none of this was going to satisfy him. So he went out looking and he searched out the best he could understand the wisest teachers of his time. So first he went to, um, the first teacher he went to taught him samadhi. And the Buddha was a great adept at this, and he learned what this teacher had to teach. In fact, he learned it really well, and the teacher said, you have, you've learned this, you know everything I've had, why don't you join me and become part of the leader of leaders, one of the leaders with me of this community of practitioners that are practicing this way of samadhi. And he said, no, I don't think so. I don't think this is what I'm looking for. It's very peaceful. It's quite wonderful, as I'll talk more about later on. But this isn't giving me the full final release, full liberation. That is what I'm looking for. So he left. And then he went off and he found another teacher. And this teacher taught, taught him even more about samadhi. More, higher, deeper states of absorption. And he mastered this too. And this teacher said, oh, you have just you know, mastered this and so well, why don't you take over this community? And you be the teacher. And the Buddha said, 
no, this isn't what I'm looking for. And then he went off and continued his pursuit. Just as after a few days of samadhi, we too will continue our, our pursuit in a little bit different way. But I think it's very interesting to realize that the Buddha had this incredibly profound, when we say he mastered it, you know, it took him, it wasn't like something he did in two days. So it's okay, you don't have, his, have to have his level of mastery in two days. But, you know, he, but he realized this wasn't it. And he didn't know exactly what he was looking for, but he realized the limitations of the samadhi. But he also had, by practicing samadhi, had the benefits of it to pull on, to access. And the specific practices that he did were very deep states of into the jhanas, as it's called, the states of um, concentration and absorption. And later on in his teachings, he would often instruct his practitioners, go off, find yourself a good empty spot, a base of a tree, a hut with nobody in it, and practice. Go through, do the, these deep practices of concentration, through the, do some of the jhanas, and then practice the rest of my teachings. So I think this collecting process that we do is really important, this unification of the mind. At one point, the Buddha talked about that there's four imponderables. And one of the imponderables, in other words, things that you can't figure out and really like name, like how it makes sense. And one of them was the power of the concentrated mind. He, he was saying, these minds of ours, when we unify it, when we collect it and get rid of the distractions, is unbelievably powerful. And in our daily lives, in the way that we're often distracted and pulled one way and another, this incredible capacity, this power of our minds is often, I can speak from experience, quite compromised. We do not, our minds are wild animals running here and there. It's often compared to the monkey, you know, running this way, that way, after treats, running, climbing fences, climbing trees. So in this process, we're trying to unify our mind, collecting it. Some people translate the word samadhi as composing, composure. That's a nice word. It kind of has, I like that word because it has a kind of dignity in it. To be composed, unified, upright, and ready. There's a readiness in that word for me. And to what purpose? That's what we have to keep coming back to. To what purpose? Yes, concentration uh, is, it, it feels nice. 
it's very easeful and peaceful. As our mind becomes collected, it's such a relief from the distractions that we're usually running around. It gives us a break. And we start to feel that it's sort of like a wild horse that's been trained. You can feel the power of it. And also, as we do that process, we better understand and see more clearly the dangers of the distracted mind, the habits and patterns that push and pull us, and the tendency we have to live in the mental proliferation, to live in our concepts and ideas and in this sort of parallel virtual reality made up of our thoughts. And as we, can, as we collect ourselves, we start to see how this is like a completely other world. I remember once somebody at the end of a retreat said to me, said, I realize most of my time is spent planning conversations that will never happen. And he said, I've realized not a single one has ever happened the way I planned it. Well, of course not. There's another person involved. You know, but we start to see what are, what virtual separate reality are we spending most of our time living in? Most of us have some favorites, maybe a range of them. But as we collect our mind, we see that more clearly. But ultimately, this collecting of the mind allows us to see clearly the nature of things, the causes and conditions that cause one thing to rise in another, to allow us to see the, the impermanence, allows us to see how we create and experience suffering and how we can find our way out of it. Ultimately, this is the purpose. And in that, we free our hearts. When our hearts are unburdened by hmm, their stories, their distractions, the ways that we create suffering, then our hearts have space, compassion, loving kindness, joy, and equanimity, peace, and ease, all these wholesome qualities that are our birthright. They're already here, but they get covered over through these activities of our mind. But as we train the mind, we have this opportunity to let these natural qualities of the heart come through. One way of understanding the path is as a triad of sila, samadhi, panya. I'll explain the words. You not. The first one, sila, is ethical conduct. That's the precepts, which Donald spoke about last night. But this is a process by, by purifying our conduct. Then our mind becomes less distracted. 
not only is it, it's a lovely loop because it's like we are expressing our hearts by caring for the world, for, by not causing harm, but also by not doing things harmful, we are freeing our minds. I think we all know how it is when you say something that wasn't so nice or sort of just kind of jumped out and you and then you spend the next hours or maybe days going oh and then you have to go and do your repair work and undo what you said it's a lot of work so as we purify our behavior our minds are purified there's we don't have to carry all that around with us and as our minds get simpler less complex in there I'll say um, actually one other example of that complexity. I noticed that one of my cues for that I was about to do something that isn't quite so good is all the justifications. I would just, I can just watch my mind say, yeah, but because of this and because of that, it's okay. And because of that, and if I just don't do it, then all that space is cleared up. The justifications are all gone. So when we clear out the distractions, when there's less clutter there, we have the opportunity to develop the samadhi, this collectedness of the mind. And then with that collectedness of the mind, panya, wisdom, of the types I was just naming, seeing the nature of things can be developed. And that development, panya, is the result of insight. So we develop the samadhi in order not to end with samadhi, but as a means for developing wisdom. (coughs) The faculty of samadhi, this composure, we can't make it happen. It's really important to recognize that. You cannot make concentration happen. You might have already figured that out. Or you might think that you're just not doing it right and if you could just if you just got it worked out you could make it happen. We can't. We can set up the conditions. We can orient towards it. We can practice. But It is a resulting condition. So we can have the confidence in our practice, the confidence to show up, sit after sit, and walk after walk, that this is meaningful and it's going to lead us where we want to go. And that confidence is one of the conditions. Another one is putting in energy, effort. And it's not a huge leaning forward, gritting our teeth energy, but it is that persistence that Donald mentioned, that persistence moment after moment, again and again and again. 
And you've probably noticed that does take a certain amount of energy. But part of the, the art of meditation is seeing how much energy does it take and how do we refine that to use our energy in a way that really works. You know how when you're learning um, uh, something that you haven't done before, you know, I'm thinking a few years ago I tried to learn to surf. <sighs> oh my God. Every muscle in my body hurt. I was exhausted after a little while. And yet I could look out there and see that the people who know how to do it could do the amount of surfing I actually did. And it would be nothing, right? Because they've learned how to skill, to use the right amount of effort for the situation as it arises. And so this is a big part of our practice is testing the water, saying, oh, how, you know, how much energy do I need to put in here? And how do I need to put it in so that it doesn't exhaust me, but it's effective? Test right now. How much energy does it take for you to feel your body sitting on the chair? To be aware of your breath. really doesn't take a big bunch of energy, does it? It's just this little movement. We have to do that movement again and again. And then mindfulness. This is one of the key conditions for setting ourselves up for samadhi. Mindfulness is that moment to moment. That's what the energy is doing for us. That's what that effort is doing, is letting us, creating the moment to moment mindfulness. Again and again. And from these, then the concentration arises from these other conditions. These are called the five spiritual faculties. The confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and then wisdom. Wisdom, we can't make happen either. These earlier ones, we can set it up and then the practice flows from there. I think it's useful to name, and this will become more apparent as we go along, but that there are a couple of different ways of cultivating samadhi. One is to have the moments of mindfulness on a single pointed, a single object called one pointedness. So you're staying with the breath or the sounds, or your body, moment after moment after moment, always coming back. And then the other way that concentration is cultivated is by momentary 
mindfulness, where your attention is with an object and then with a next object and with a different object, but the mindfulness is going from object to object without a lot of gaps. It's just here, 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 here. And that continuity of mindfulness does also unify the mind. So it's important to know that, that although we're choosing in this time of practice to initiate the cultivation and unification with one pointedness, you can do it through watching different objects. It's a little bit harder and sometimes a little bit slower because of our tendency to get distracted. There's a certain clarity to watching the breath. And that's why it's used in so many traditions. And when you're watching the breath, it's much clearer that you've wandered off. You know that when you're thinking, you're not doing what you were intending to to do. Whereas if you're doing momentary attention, at first it's like, well, okay, I'm just watching thinking. And then you might tumble into it. So by choosing an object, it can simplify this initial process of unifying the mind. So a couple other things about this samadhi, that there is unification of mind, but we're particularly interested in right, samasamadhi, right or wise concentration. And this is one of the eightfold path factors. And perhaps to give you an example, there's many examples of concentration that do not really fit in this category. I'll give you one from my own life because it was useful. It taught me how to unify my mind, which is I used to be a climber and um, I I climbed a lot. And one of the things that I really like to do, that this, this should have the warning label, right? Don't do this at home. Okay, warning label put on. Is one of the things I really like to do was go out and solo climb, just free climb. And I would go every day to this. I lived in Yosemite and I would go climb this 500 foot cliff without a rope or a friend or anything and just climb it it led to a lot of unification of mind. Because when every step, every movement of your hand has to be perfect or you'll die, you really pay attention. Very effective. Not recommended. I don't think that that was Sama Samadhi. The less extreme example would be you play an instrument or you're involved in a creative process, or you're a writer, or you're a programmer, or you're involved in a sport. All of these things, you probably have experienced one or another of them. There is a unification of mind that happens, right? And that's often why people really, why those things are so wonderful, because all the distractions fall away.
But the unification of mind that we're interested in, although I will say I feel like the way I unified my mind really helped me in my practice because my mind had a little groove to go into. But the unification that we're much more interested in is this one based on mindfulness, clear comprehension in the present moment of what's happening. With a, uh, an underlying intention, that rudder that I spoke about earlier is in the water and we're oriented. And so the other path factors, the wise understanding and wise view and right speech and all of those things are coming into play. The process of cultivating this unification in some ways is very simple. Have you noticed that today? Very simple. I didn't say easy. Simple. It's like you either know you're on the breath or you're not. And there's a certain relief in that. You know, sometimes when, if we are doing other practice, you're kind of like, oh, well, let's see. Now I'm doing a little of this, a little loving kindness, and now I'm paying attention to my body. And, oh, now there's sounds. And, oh, what was I doing anyway? And is this practice okay? And we can get a little confused and wonder about what we're doing. When we're doing samadhi practice, it's really simple and clear. You're on the breath. And when I, I, like earlier, when I use the word breath, I mean your primary object. And if you're using a different one, that's absolutely fine. But when you're either on your primary object or you're not. And then when you notice that you're not, The instruction is simple. Come back to the primary object. And that process of letting go again and again of that, of anything else. So there's a couple things that come up as we do this. The training process itself of coming back to the breath teaches us so much we see all the ways we get distracted. We see the habits of our mind. In some ways, this is very important because we can have the idea that if I'm not on my breath, I'm not doing it right, and there's nothing in it for me. And that's not the case. If we pay attention, we learn an immense amount from the process of trying to come back to our breath. We see Oh, my habit is that I drift off into a fantasy. And I just, and even though I know the breath is there, I just get so, it just feels so soft and nice to be in that fantasy world. Oh, oh isn't that interesting? What's, what's happening there? What, what, what is this habit pattern I've developed? Or, if you're like me, the habit pattern that is strongest for me, even after decades of practice, is planning mind. Planning mind. And I, I know there was a time when this was 
uh, unnerving. I remember, I think I went to dozens of teachers with, how do you solve planning mind? I had got lots of good suggestions. <laughs> but um, we learn about our own minds. One of the instructions that I like to offer that I found really useful is drop it mid-sentence. Whatever thinking thing you're involved in, drop it mid-sentence. When you see that you're thinking, drop it and go back to the breath. Now, one of the most useful things about this instruction is noticing when you're not willing to do it. (laughs) That you see there's an opportunity, you're present enough to see, and then you go, well, I'll just finish this thought. Or this one's really good. Or, you know, all the different ways that we just kind of... Feeling that attachment to continuing is very, very key to our process. It's really helpful to know, and I admit I need to go back and figure out the... I'm very curious how they actually did this, but I don't know. But the statistic that I've heard, and I think it was an experiment that was done at Stanford, was that they discovered that 97% of the thoughts you have, you've had before. And 95% of them you had yesterday. So we're starting with only a 5% fresh each day, and out of those, after a little while, you don't, there's not much new happening. So this is really, in one way, humiliating, but in another way, reassuring. If you drop it mid-sentence, you don't need to worry. It'll be back. (laughs) So just let it go. Just let it go. One of the other things that happens when we do this... um, this very simple practice is sometimes we get the idea it's boring. And I have a a couple things about boring because I love it when somebody tells me, oh, it's boring. I'm like, yeah, you're right there. You're, You're rubbing up against because what boring is, is a kind of you've gotten right in there and felt how simple it is. And how there's not a whole lot you need to do. But there's just some extra aversion to that. There's still a sense that the distraction and excitement that we're used to in our lives would somehow be more interesting. So this simplicity of it isn't so interesting yet. But it's just a hair's breadth away from ease and contentment because you're there enough to get bored. That's a good sign. The other thing that is happening for many of us when we get bored is that we've got our mind, we've dropped some of the distraction and we've collected ourselves enough to be with the object of our attention, but our attention isn't yet refined enough 
to see how what we're paying attention to is interesting. Let me see if I can say that another way, because you might have missed it. It's like we've... So to use an example, say you go outside and you're used to being in a place with lots of big trees and you go out into the desert. And at first you go, it's really boring here. This is a desert. I live in the desert. It's really boring here. And it's because your sight hasn't yet attuned to the subtlety that is there. And as you tune in to the subtlety that's there, you discover it's actually very interesting. So this happens for us as we collect our mind and stop running around to all this stuff that seems kind of interesting. And we go, oh, the breath. Oh, the breath seems kind of boring. But when we stay with it more, we can start getting involved with the subtlety of it. And it becomes much more interesting. And I encourage you to see if you can have that attitude with the breath. What's, what's here? Being curious. What if I looked under this bush? or on the other side of that rock. What else, what can I notice about the breath that I haven't yet noticed? Every breath like a new curiosity. And that helps bring our attention down to the level of refinement of what we're paying attention to. So we also, I mentioned that along the way, we see how we're attached to um, different thoughts or distractions. There's a lot that happens as we try to pull in. And there's a number of challenging energies. Some of you might be familiar with it as a list of the what's called the hindrances. But I think it's more useful to think of them as these challenging energies. And we get to know these energies as we go along because they all visit all of us. How many people have been sleepy today? (laughs) And maybe restless at some other point, you know? Wanted something that you didn't have? (laughs) Didn't like something that you ran into? or that occurred, or someone said, or... Yeah, they all come along. And this is another place where it's very important that we notice that, because we're learning about our habits of mind. These things are happening every day. But as we unify, as we have this intention to stay on our breath, then... It's like it sort of uh, puts neon the other things that happen, and we see them clearly. When some, one of these other things happens, when you get restless or you get tired, 
You don't, with the, um, this practice of samadhi, of coming back to the primary object, if you can, you don't need to do anything with that energy. You don't need to solve it. You don't need to investigate it. You can just go, yep, restlessness. Now back to my breath. Yep, wanting there to be cookies at lunch. Back to my breath. So you can just, it, a lot of times, many of these thoughts and energy, that wanting something, the leaning forward or the pushing back, just come back to the breath. Nothing more is required. And a lot of times that's enough. One of the things that happens as we continue this process, as our mind unifies, is that coming back gets easier. And as it gets easier and we get more collected, then we're less disturbed. These arise less frequently. One of the great benefits of us of cultivating this composure is that when we have this collectedness, this unification of mind, these energies are temporarily at bayance, at, uh, at away, <laughs> not here. Abeyance, that's a word, isn't it? Yeah. And that is such a wonderful experience. It gives us a sense of what um, is possible for us. It is temporary. They do come back when the concentration falls apart. But it gives us a taste. Sometimes... Well, I'm just struck as I say that there's a wonderful, an elder who's not alive now, who's the teacher of many and had contact with many of the uh, teachers in our community, um, Deepama. And she was a woman who lived in Calcutta and had an amazing samadhi practice. She was one of those people that their her samadhi practice... Um, led to things that were imponderable for the people were purported to have seen her in two locations at once or walking through walls or things that we go, I don't get it. Once she was asked, what's in your mind? What is, what's happening in there? And she said, there's three things. Peace concentration and love. Wow, that would be a nice mind to have, wouldn't it? I find that very inspiring. That's what was in her mind. Sometimes though, when we're doing this practice, the, one of these hindrances comes along these energies, and it's just too strong, you know, the, and we have to turn, you know, we're just having a huge aversion attack. And it's helpful when, if it gets too strong, to turn towards it, to 
bring the practices that you know from your Vipassana, to feel it in your body, to recognize what's happening, to name it, to attend to it, as you would to an emotion that came that's very strong. Be present, be kind, let what's happening happen, see it fully, knowing it is impermanent, it will pass. And when it passes, then you can go back to your primary object. It's not so skillful to pretend that you're on your primary object and that's not really at all what's happening. You're being inundated. So it's fine to make a skillful choice at times. Like, no, this is, this is, I'm not able to let go of this right now. I need to turn and face it directly. They're called hindrances because they get in the way of us being uh, directing our mind where we want to go. If you turn and face it and want to put your mind on it, then it no longer has any energy. Then you're paying attention and learning from that. So then it's just a challenging energy. And I didn't name the fifth. Uh, uh, for those of you, I think probably most of you know th- recognize these, but just to name them so that when they come up, you, you have a label ready for them. Wanting, that's that clinging, that leaning forward. You can feel it in your body. Oh, if only I had this, everything would be different. That energy. And then there's aversion, the push it away, lean back further. How could they possibly have thought that was a good idea? who I can't possibly tolerate that. I'm going to write a note and tell them to correct it right away. (laughs) All those things. And then sleepiness. You know what that's like. It can be of the body or of the mind. And sleepiness, that one, it's good to stay with the breath and really, if you can, cultivate even more interest. See, one of the antidotes for sleepiness is to get more interested, more curiosity. And it helps to open your eyes, stand up, all of those. If you're about to do a walking, maybe do a little bit faster paced walking can be helpful. All of those things. And then restlessness. That one's usually just a matter sometimes we one of the way it expresses in the body and in the mind sometimes in the mind as worry or planning so trying to see if you can just keep coming back just keep coming back and notice if you start feeding it you start getting involved in the restlessness getting involved in the stories And in the body, it's just sensation. Like Jack once said, be the first person to die of restlessness on the cushion. Just a little unpleasant. The bell will ring eventually. (laughs) And then the last one is doubt. And samadhi practice is really good for this one because doubt has this way. And what it is is this like, oh, I'm never going to get this right or 
what was I thinking when I signed up for this? And, well, if the teachers gave decent instructions, I could probably figure it out. Or whatever form it comes, it's, it's a thinking process. It's a doubting of some of either the teachings, the practice, your own ability to do it, the conditions. And this, we, sometimes we try to think our way out of it, and it doesn't work. It really is best to just go back to your primary object, go, yeah, there it is, that, that's doubt coming up. This is the inhale, this is the exhale, and just stay right there. In all of this, one of the key things, and I know Donald talked about this this morning, but have to keep coming back to it, is balancing the relaxation and the effort. Keep checking. What's happening? Is there tension in my body? Have I gotten, am I leaning forward and trying to grab a hold? Is there a striving energy? Particularly if it starts getting a lot of self-judgment. I'm not doing it. I should do it better. Really notice that. And then see if you can soften. Realize you're doing the best you can. You're not going to get there any faster. I learned, I, not that long ago, I used to practice um, one-pointed concentration with a lot of striving. I mean, I would just sit down and I'd be like, I am not letting go of the breath. And I be right there for everyone. And I think my entire body was like a little knot holding on. And in a certain way, it was very successful. I got very concentrated. It was unnecessarily painful. And it, it took me a long time. I gave it an experiment once. I said, what if I just stay with the breath as much as I can without this grabbing a hold of it, but just stay with it. And I noticed it was a little challenging because my mind would wander a little bit more. And I would, I had to let go of the idea that I would be with every single breath. So sometimes my mind would wander more. What I noticed was at the end of a few days, I was equally, equally, my mind was equally unified whichever way I did it. But one way had been a struggle. And the other, I just did the best I could each moment and just kept coming back, but didn't have this big uh, grabbing a hold agenda. So you play with it. See where you can find the balance. So as the samadhi deepens, there is a pleasantness to this. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because it helps support the deepening itself. 
It's like, ah, there's an ease and a, whew, not being so distracted. It, it feeds on itself. It's like once we get some momentum going, it helps the whole process. And the Buddha had these wonderful similes for the collected mind. He was referring specifically, he had different similes for different jhanas and stuff, but the effect, even anywhere along the way, is the same. This relaxation and this dropping away of distraction. And one of the similes I had, which is my favorite, he says, just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from east, west, north, or south, and with the skies periodically supplying abundant showers, so that the cool font of water welling up from within the lake could permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. Even so, the practitioner permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. There is nothing of his his or her entire body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of composure. Pretty lovely. I love that image, a well a wellspring coming up in the middle of the lake and just filling us. And this, the image, the simile is important because it's coming from within. This is a very important aspect of the samadhi practice is we realize that there's immense pleasure and ease available from within us that we don't need it to come from outside. That our settled mind is in itself immensely satisfying. So we have this quieting of the mind, the peace and ease that comes with it. We have also this process along the way, which teaches us about our habits. And we get to learn. We get to learn how we construct suffering. We get to see as we learn the art of working with our own minds, we get to see how causes and conditions play out. We can see how we try one thing, we experiment, and how it has one effect. And we try something else in a different way and it has a different effect. So we're playing with causes and conditions along the way and we're seeing the process. We're seeing where we cling and suffer, where we're not able to just come back to our object. We are learning to work with the seven factors of enlightenment, investigation, energy, joy, mindfulness, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. 
all of these, you might not need to, you don't need to name them all the time, but you're learning to work, to bring in the wholesome, to feel the skillful means and capacities growing in you. And then as time goes on, you have this collected mind to turn towards wisdom. And we'll be talking more about that as the days go on. So perhaps in a couple days, we'll move on in the Buddha's story to when he took this collected and concentrated mind and pursued the insight practice. But I really encourage you in the meantime to develop the collectedness of the Buddha. This is what he said in the Samyutta Nikaya. Practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. So let's sit together for a couple minutes. So it can be challenging during the talk to have maintained attention to your breath. You might have. But allow yourself now to come back. Restabilize on your primary object. It's always there, available. Just a simple movement of attention away.
Thank you for your kind attention to the Dharma and for your practice. We have a walking period and then we'll come back to practice metta for the final sit of the day. And it'll probably be a little shorter than the schedule. So you can come back knowing that you're not committed to that whole time. First day is long. It'll definitely be a little shorter. He's, he'll be here. So it'll be short. And if it's time for you to go to bed, rest well. And otherwise, we'll see you here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.